There are sheets that are going around, and you will be getting a worksheet if you want to use one. Uh, but I, for the sake of time, Hosea is a 14-chapter book, um, and we have about 40 minutes. So I want to go ahead and get started uh, on Hosea. I did want to kind of piggyback off of what Ryan said. The song that that uh, young woman wrote was about what he didn't do. Hosea is about what uh, Gomer and Israel did do. So it's the other side of the coin of our devotional talk tonight. Um, we had, we did, I don't know if you've ever been in a congregation where the curriculum was laid out, uh, where everybody studied the same thing uh, from cradle roll all the way through adults. When I was in Virginia, we had a couple of deacons and uh, their wives that wrote a five-year curriculum, three years in the Old Testament, two years in the New Testament. So that meant, or the, the thinking behind that is that Every child could go through the Bible three times before they graduated, well, two and a half times before they graduated from high school, uh, but also parents and children could talk about uh, Bible class on the way home. What did you learn in, in class? You can imagine how tough that was for the teachers of small children when we got to the book of Hosea. And how do you teach that to those who are four and five and uh, first graders, second graders, and so forth? Um, when we think about Hosea, and we'll say more about this in just a moment, we kind of know on the surface what uh, Hosea is about, or at least some of the theme about it. But I want to give you, as we've been trying to do in our studies each week, we want to kind of follow a progression. There's no way that I can teach the entire book of Hosea. This would be an entire quarter. Uh, And so even though I'm going to try to dig into some of the text tonight, we're, we're also going to tell you the occasion, the background, the introduction, material for the book of Hosea to kind of give you some context. Because if you remember, this is all on a timeline, and some of these were done in the 9th century all the way down, get to Malachi, to the 5th century. So we have diverse audiences, we have uh, diverse messages, uh, diverse uh, people who write the books. When we get to Hosea, something to know by way of introduction is he is the only northern kingdom inhabitant who teaches to the northern kingdom. So he's the only guy from the northern kingdom who teaches to the northern kingdom. And and try not to belabor this, but when we say Israel tonight, we're talking about the northern kingdom, not the entire nation of Israel. We talk about Judah. Judah used to be a part of Israel, but they divided. So this is a book written from uh, Hosea, who's in Israel, the northern kingdom, to the northern kingdom. Now I say that, last week who did you study? Wow. I wasn't here, so that's not a rhetorical question. Amos, thank you very much, front row. All right. Amos, who is the audience? Who is Amos written to? Israel, the northern kingdom. But where's Amos from? Southern kingdom. All right, how about Jonah? Where's Jonah from? Huh? So where does that put him? North or south? I've got a 50% chance to get it right. No, based on what you said. Israel. All right, good. But who's his audience? Nineveh. Neither north nor south. All right, so Hosea stands alone. He stands alone, and it kind of helps us with the timeline because one of the big dates that we mentioned, as you connect it to Israel, the northern kingdom, what's kind of the, the last big date? Do you know, or at least what happens? Do you know what happens? What's the last date on the calendar of Israel, the nation? 
722. What happens in 722? Okay, so the kingdom divides before that, but something happens big in 722 that has to do with our message tonight. Assyrian captivity. All right, so and when, when Assyria takes Israel captive, what happens to the nation of Israel? They're done. Okay? So we know that he's writing, coming along, where we've kind of tried to do this chronologically. So Israel is the last voice. He's the last message that is ever going to be heard by Israel. It's their last effort, uh, opportunity to repent and come back to God, to see some mercy, some forbearance. Is God going to uh, turn the tide of history and cause Assyria to go a different direction and not destroy them? We don't know because of how they receive the message uh, that's given. So as we think about Hosea, if you were to try to use a word to describe Hosea, what would it be? From whatever you do or don't know, well, no, from whatever you do know, <laughs> you could give me an answer from what you don't know, that's okay. What do you know about Hosea? Accommodating? What else? Okay, Obedient. And we're going to see why, how powerful his obedience is when we see what the task is that God gives him to do. Anything else that you might use to describe Hosea? Okay, loyal even when there's a reason not to be. That's very important to the book of Hosea. And I think it gives rise to another quality of Hosea that is so important to understanding him. Okay, it's a surprising, if, and I'm, I'm trusting we're going to get there, that's going to be one of our major themes of the book, surprisingly, is hope. Forgiving, okay, that kind of ties right into what Hannah's saying. Faithful, faithful by way of contrast, right? Uh, given the marriage that he's in. But, but I also want you to think about how, how must Hosea feel in his personal life? If you were to describe Hosea the man, hurt and heartbroken. In fact, he has been called the heartbroken prophet. He's also, by the way, been called the prophet of love. And so you have this man who is heartbroken, and we'll find out more, of course, as we dig into the book as to why that that is. But I want you to think about how some of the richest music, some of the richest writing, some of the richest sermons and Bible classes have come from those who are, are speaking those things out of an anguish of heart and soul. I can tell you I have been in some deep valleys where I, I have felt like that um, I, I have connected to the word in a way that I might not have otherwise and whether or not that made it more effective I don't know but I felt it more in those valleys of life Hosea has got to feel the message because of what's going on in his life um, personally now when we think about him by way of the introduction in the background we can start to place the date of this book based on uh, a fact that starts the book off. Amos chapter 1 and verse 1, if you'll have your Bibles open there, it says, In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. So this places him in the 8th century uh, B.C. alongside of Isaiah and Amos uh, and Micah as a prophet who's writing from Israel to Israel we're not surprised to see him make a lot of references geographically to places that he shows a familiarity with. He knows these places, um, and some of them, you'll find these, these names, these cities that are mentioned throughout Hosea. Uh, when you come across them, maybe you want to write uh, Northern Kingdom. I put NK in my notes. Gilead, 
It's a city in the northern kingdom. Mizpah and Tabor, Gilgal, Bethel, and Lebanon. These are all places that uh, the northern kingdom would have been familiar with, and he would have been because of uh, his own history and background. Alright, so it's written in the 8th century B.C. A great background historically to figure out how the Bible fits together is to read 2 Kings 14.23 through chapters 17 and 23. And as you read through that little section of the book of 2 Kings, and by the way, 1 Kings and 2 Kings are written to chronicle the people, the, the, the men and the main events of the rulers of Israel and Judah. That's why it has the name Kings. So in 2 Kings 14 through 17, you have the events that Hosea is both warning about and is living through. Now, you might not know this or remember this, but 2 Kings chapter 17 is a big chapter in the Bible as it deals with the divided kingdom. 2 Kings chapter 17 is the chapter that tells us about Assyria taking the northern kingdom off into captivity and they're being destroyed. And we'll come back to that uh, maybe uh, again in a moment. But if you were to read Isaiah 1.1, Amos 1.1 and Micah 1 and verse 1, what you're going to see is that they overlap. Um, Their ministries, their works overlap. Uh, Their messages are to some degree to the same, at least the first three guys, to the same audience. Um, And to remind ourselves, Israel had divided following the death of Solomon in 931. And what has happened since that time is that Israel and Judah have coexisted side by side north and south, for almost 200 years. What's what's been the relationship between those two nations? How'd they get along? At first, how did they get along? Not good, okay? And then in the process of time, there were, it's interesting, times when they got along pretty well. They worked together. They went into battle with one another. And there were times when they were virtually at one another's throat. Now, as we come to read the part of their history that Hosea is writing in, things are about to fall apart. They have Jeroboam II on the throne. He is the last king with any kind of longevity, any kind of prosperity, any kind of stability. But what's going to happen right after him is there are going to be six kings that come to the throne in in short succession, one after another. And uh, four of them are going to be assassinated while they're in office. And a fifth of the six is going to be imprisoned and sent away when he's captured in battle. So at the time that uh, Hosea is writing, who's on the throne? Jeroboam II. It's a, it's a time of prosperity. It's an Indian summer before a harsh winter of destruction is coming. And so if you're the people that Hosea is, list, who, uh, is writing to who is he's speaking to, and you have all these good things going on, it's going to be hard for you to accept the message that Hosea is bringing, that God's going to bring judgment on you because of your unrighteousness and your sin. So that's where we find ourselves historically. And they're on their way, and Hosea is telling them this is what's coming to their destruction. If you look in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 6 through 18, you have one of the most graphic pictures of judgment in the Bible. We're going to read about Assyria coming in and taking them away, and the writer of Kings is going to catalog all the reasons why. There's a long list of reasons. If we had time, we would read those tonight. 
But this is the background. This is what's going on when Hosea writes. And to put it just a little bit closer, a finer point on that is, Hosea's writing at about the time that the aggression of Assyria is really starting to heat up. So he writes probably beginning about 745. Uh, As Stephen said, they're going to be gone in 722. So 22 years uh, from the time that he's writing, Israel's going to be destroyed. Now just for a moment, for perspective, 22 years ago was 2001. Now I know for some of you that's to dig a little deeper in the memory well, but for most of you, if you were to describe 2001, you would probably say something like, wasn't all that long ago. Feels like it just happened. It's not a long span of time. You know, as fast as life goes, 20 years is not going to be a lot of time. But here's what's beginning to happen. You have a guy by the name of um, uh, Tiglath-Pileser III, who is the king of Assyria. He's aggressive. They're beginning now to reach out and to try to conquer territory. They're becoming uh, this world empire that they're going to be. And uh, uh, they start... uh, Uh, conquering different uh, peoples around them, and that's spreading out. Um, Israel's going to get nervous. They're afraid of what's about to happen, and so in desperation they try to make a pact with Egypt, and Hosea's going to talk about that. He says that you reach out to Egypt, but you're going to go into Assyria, and as soon as that happens, now you've got a man by the name of Shalmaneser V, who is the king of Assyria, and he's going to lay siege to the capital city of Israel, Samaria. It's going to go on for three years. And right before he goes into the city and takes it, he's going to die. Some say maybe he was assassinated. But Sargon II is going to be the king who is in power, who goes in and sacks Samaria, Israel, and takes them into captivity, and the northern kingdom is no more. Jeroboam II is going to give way to these other kings, and that's going to be it. So, I want you to think about that as a background. Israel's in their dying days. They don't even know it. They're about to really have the screws turned to them and ultimately they're going to be destroyed and Hosea comes along and his message is just that. Everything that you read about, Hosea is saying, this is what's going to happen. But you can repent. You can come back to me, God says. But history tells us that they're not going to do that. So, um, as we look at Hosea's message you're not surprised that he is going to have some judgment language. He's going to have some strong rebuke, warnings. Uh, He's going to be talking about punishment. That shouldn't surprise us. But what maybe does surprise us is that there is a lot of mercy and love and yearning and compassion in Hosea's message. And he is God's mouthpiece. And when we look at the unique situation in the book of Hosea, what Hosea is asked to do in his marriage is exactly what God is experiencing with the nation of Israel. And what Gomer does to Hosea, that's his wife, is what Israel has done to God from the time he brought him out to Egypt, on and off, all the way throughout their history. So you would think if it was you and I who was in the place of God, a thing we never want to even think about and contemplate doing, but our message would be different, right? Oh, We'd have the judgment. We'd have the, the condemnation and the fire. But what about the love and the compassion and, and the care? 
And there's a reason for that. It's not with no strings attached. It's not unconditional. You're going to see it's very conditional in its nature. But God, even hurt and offended as he is, is saying, I still want you back. All right, so if we can keep that in our mind in the background, when we start looking into the book, I think it will help us to see exactly what's taking place. Hosea's name, anybody have a little marginal rending somewhere? If you have a study Bible, what does it mean? God is salvation. It's very close to uh, the name Hoshea, which, which, by the way, is the king who tries to make that treaty with Egypt. Hoshea, Joshua, is the Hebrew counterpart to the Greek Jesus. And you remember what the angel said to uh, Joseph in Matthew 121? You shall call his name what? Uh, Jesus. Because why? What's Jesus going to do? You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Alright, so Hosea is bringing a message of salvation in a very dark time. Um, and, it, and it's fitting that God is salvation is the message because of what happens in chapter 2. In chapter 2, God through Hosea and Hosea's situation says, I gave you your wine, your grain, your oil, your silver, and your gold, and you turned to these other lovers when all along what you were looking for was right here with me at home. And in chapter 8 and verse 11, in chapter 11 rather in verse 1, he says, I called you out of Egypt and I made a covenant with you. But Israel is determined to reject that love, all that provision for the nations around them. Okay, with that being uh, established, let's look at an overview and an outline of the book of Hosea. You know, it seems to me like the book of Hosea is kind of like the Bible in miniature. Um, If you were to try to tell somebody who's never studied the Bible before what the Bible is all about, what would you say? How would you explain it to somebody who had no context about the Bible? God has a plan for the redemption of man. An undying love for faithful people, which would really directly tie it to the book of Hosea. It really is. Isn't the Bible, in in teaching the, the scheme of redemption, it's about the salvation of humanity through Christ to the glory of God. Is that an accurate representation from Genesis to Revelation? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and hang on to that thought because if we get to Jesus in, in the, uh, the book of Hosea, that's really one of the overriding thoughts in, involved in that. So you can actually connect Hosea to the Bible in that sense. But think about it in another regard. Yes, that's true that that's what the Bible's about. But is it, is, is it that simple? Is the Bible that simple? What happens when you start digging down a little bit deeper and you start looking through the individual books? Hey, you sitting in the Revelation class on Sunday morning? It's, a, it's rich. Is, is it simple? And yet it's part of that message, right? So let's take the book of Hosea. What's the book of Hosea about just right off the top of your head? It's about a guy who marries an unfaithful wife as an illustration about what Israel has done to God. Is that true? Absolutely. But when you start digging into it more deeply, what's fascinating is that the same thing happens. You begin to see all the facets and and all the different sides, all that's to be plumbed in the depths of the book of Hosea. And if we had time, we would look at how he makes allusions. He points to events that take them back into their past. 
from the time that Moses brought them out of Egypt. He is tying all that together to where they are. And he uses some incredible devices. He uses similes that we'll look at. He uses analogies. He uses metaphors. He uses personification. It, on one level, is very complicated. Someone has likened it to the parables of Jesus, which you have to not... Uh, it's not, it's not a matter, Dwayne Garrett says it's not a matter of intelligence, it's a matter of submission. That you really got to want to dig down in there and to know what that message is about. So it is that simple, but it has some layers to it that are, are very fascinating. So let's get into an outline of what the uh, book of Hosea is about. I looked at a lot of different outlines. I couldn't find any two that were anywhere near alike. It's a very difficult book to outline. I think a good way to approach the book of Hosea is a two-point outline. We have the personal and the prophetic. So you have the personal situation that Hosea um, is given by God to marry Gomer and all that happens in that. And then after we see the various stages involved in his personal situation, Hosea then begins this prophetic word, from chapter 4 to the end of uh, the book in chapter 14. So let's kind of dig through that and look at that outline in chapter 1. And I'm sorry about the size of the... Oh, it's a little easier to see there than I can see it. In chapter 1, you have Hosea's assignment in chapter 1. And I like the way the New, the new Living Translation uh, uh, puts that. And uh, I'll share that with you here in just a moment. Um, what, what he says is basically... I want you to marry a wife of prostitution. And I want you to have, uh, uh, she will have children of harlotry. Okay, so there's the idea behind that. Um, I, I knew a, a preacher, you, I tell this story because there's no way anybody in this room knows anything about it. A preacher who was married to a woman and they had three children. And in the process of time, he found out, discovered that she was having an affair. And found out through that that this was one in a series of affairs. And by the time that all was said and done, he figured out that no three of those children were his. That she had had those all by different men. You could imagine how devastating that was and how it caused that home to crumble. Now when we begin to see the assignment that God gives to Hosea, I want you to think in terms of what God asks him to do and then immediately what happens. And if you'll notice the language, a lot of times in the Old Testament it'll say that she bore him a son or she bore him a daughter. It doesn't say that at all when it comes to Gomer. It says that she, con that she conceived and had a son, a daughter, and then a son. So God says, I want you to go into this circumstance and I want you to marry a woman from prostitution and this is what's going to happen. Because Israel has done this. When we look at the children that are born, it's interesting that all of these names have symbolism. The first one is Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows. And there's an interesting play on words in all three of these names that are given to these children that has to do with God's relationship to Israel in some way. Now what God is going to do is he's going to scatter Israel. But Jezreel of the three children who are named really has um, a much richer symbolism. Jezreel's a place in Israel. 
And Jezreel is the place where Jehu is appointed by Elisha and God to go in and to Elijah and God to go in and destroy the house of Ahab. So you can go to 2 Kings 9 and 10 and you can see how he gets rid of everybody. But also Jezreel is the place you'll notice in Hosea chapter 1 where Jehu's family is going to be destroyed. His dynasty is going to come to an end and with that Israel is going to come to an end. But he also uses Jezreel as the place where God is going to sow and in the future restore the people of God. So here he is even in this judgment. He's looking ahead and saying there's going to be a better day in which the people of God are going to be restored. There's going to be a chance to come back and God will have you again. All right. Then he has the two other names. The name of the daughter, Lo-Ru-Hamah. And that means no mercy. And here God is saying that he will have no mercy on Israel because of how they behaved. And then you have Lo-Ami, which means not my people. God is going to reject Judah. And so the fact that these children are fathered by men other than Hosea is a symbol that these, the Israelites had turned to these nations rather than to God. But what I want you to notice is how God responds even after Israel had turned to the nations around them, had become like the Canaanites in their behavior. Even after that, go to Hosea chapter 2 and verse 21 and see what he says. Now Hosea, God is sending Hosea to the future. After he has warned that they're going to be scattered, they're going to have no mercy, they're not going to be his people anymore, he says, It will come about on that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have compassion on her who had contained, uh, obtained no mercy. I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people. And they will say, you are my God. It kind of reminds us of a prophet we're going to see in Habakkuk 3 and verse 2. Revive your works in the midst of the year. In wrath, remember mercy. And what I want you to remember is, as we walk through this, is that this is God's nature. He's been offended by the sin of Israel for century upon century. They have hurt the perfect heart of God, who is too pure to look upon evil. Habakkuk 1 and verse 13, and despite that, God's desire is to restore them. He wants them back. Now we're going to look at that in the context of Israel, and we may make some application of that in the church, but I want you to also think about that in terms of your individual life. Not that you want to live in high-handed rebellion against the will of God, but I want you to understand that as you wrestle and struggle with the sin in your life, that God, though He hates sin so much that He gave His Son for it, also stands desirous to extend mercy, to make you his child, and to gather you. And if we, if we could not accept that any other way, can't we accept that in this illustration that God has given us with Hosea and Gomer? Alright, so then we see uh, in chapter 2, the first part, Israel is the unfaithful wife. Um, verse 9 through 13 lets us know that this is not just about Hosea and Gomer, it's about God and Israel. And then in chapter 2, verse 14 through 23, we have a faithful husband who woos his faithless wife. That's verse 14 through 23. Even though she's been unfaithful, God pursues Israel as passionately as he had from the beginning. 
And that really leads us to the crescendo. Remember, this is the part where we're looking at Hosea's personal life, but even in the middle of that, God's interjecting the Israel situation into it. And in chapter 3, what we have is a difficult but a deep love. This is that short chapter, chapter 3. For most of my at least adult life, I guess I don't remember talking about this before then, I remember on many occasions conversations, sometimes they were informal, sometimes they were in class, where people would say, a husband or a wife would say, you know, I can forgive a lot of things. But if my, my spouse was to cheat on me, that's it. Be done. No more. And we understand, don't we, Matthew 19 and verse 9, that's a, a right that they have to make that decision. Jesus makes that an exception where one can dissolve a marriage and even be married again. But let me tell you what my personal experience has been in ministry. I've sat across the table with a lot of folks who have suffered through infidelity. You know what I've seen? I have seen the innocent party, the betrayed party, sometimes even being the one to initiate, to try to do what can be done to save that marriage, to plead with the guilty to put that spouse away and to come back to the marriage and to fight and to keep on fighting. And I think we can appreciate that because a lot of times what that innocent party is doing is certainly going to have to deal with a lot of hurt and pain. But they're acting as they act. Why? Why would they do that? Because they love the soul of that person who's done that. And they want to do whatever they can to give them the best chance to go to heaven. I don't know how many people I know who are in that situation. That seems to be Hosea. It's a little bit difficult. If you read through the book of Hosea, the way it's written, it makes you wonder, is Hosea going to get a different woman in Hosea chapter 3? I'm going to suggest to you I don't think that makes sense. With the illustration that God is making here, it seems that whatever has happened, he's put her away. He talks to the children about their mother and how she's behaved. And she's, uh, she's got to redeem herself, but he's going to also come and redeem her And that's what he does. Somehow she gets into this very low situation. She's used up. She's spent up. And he goes and he buys her back. And he brings her back home. That's exactly what God's done with Israel. It's a very raw and graphic beginning to this book. And all of it is the foundation of what the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, had done to God. And how... We need to put ourselves in God's position and try to understand how God would feel. Because we know it happened with three children, in Hosea's case, but it had kept on happening throughout their history together. For God, he was, it wasn't a matter of if it was going to happen again, it was a matter of when was it going to happen again. Now ultimately, he got to the point where he said, really, enough is enough. I've been patient I've been trying, but it's obvious you don't want this relationship. And so it's time to be done. But it took him a long time to get there. Now when we get to that second part, the prophetic part of the book, uh, I'm going to have to step it up. I I want to just kind of give you the the outline. We have God's case against Israel. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1 through 19, um, it kind of falls into three categories. 
They were faithless with people, verse 1 through 3. They were ignorant of God, the person, and his word, verse 4 through 10. And they were guilty of idolatry. That's kind of the laundry list of, of what God has against Israel. And he compares them to prostitutes and adulterers. That's kind of the point of Hosea. And then we have God's punishment of Israel in the next three chapters, in chapter 5 through 7. If you break that down, Israel is guilty of several charges. If you were to go through your uh, Bible with a pen, you could mark all the different things that God ticks off as a charge. I don't know if you remember when the, uh, the school shooting took place in Florida a few years ago. It wasn't that long ago, maybe 17, 18 and uh, the young man didn't die. He, he's, he was taken into custody. Do you remember that? And he was arraigned in court. I don't know if any of you heard or saw the coverage. And so he stands before the judge and they're reading off the counts. I can't even remember how many um, children died in that. But it was, it was really dramatic. The judge read off because there was like four charges for every shooting. You know, how do you plead? And it was boom, boom, boom all the way through. That's what's going on here in chapter 5. There's this laundry list of charges that God is bringing against them. And you could look and see. Um, In chapter 6, God is just for rebuking and punishing Israel. He's hurt and he's frustrated by Israel's unrequited love. She gave him sweet words, but she was untrustworthy. And then in uh, chapter 7, she gives analogies. He, or rather, Hosea gives analogies for Israel's unfaithfulness. You'll find that with the word like. He's saying this is what you're like. You're like adulterers. That's the overall metaphor, verse 4. You're like a heated oven that consumes and devours the rulers and the kings with your sin. You're like a cake that's half turned. You ever made biscuits on a fire? And maybe in a Dutch oven? I'm still working on that, but you know what happens to me more often than not? It's a little doughy on top, and then you go to flip that thing over, and it is black as char. That's kind of the idea here. You're not, you're not done. There's, there's, you're unusable. You're undigestible. You're like a silly and senseless dove. You call to Egypt. You go into Assyria. You're like a treacherous bow. You're trained for one thing, and you turn on your owner. And then you have God's disappointment with Israel in chapter 8 through 10. And that disappointment scene in chapter 8, they chose the wrong allies and the wrong altars. Um, There's the calf that's spoken of there. I think that's Jeroboam's calf in 1 Kings chapter 12. But they had gone to the wrong place for worship and they'd gone to the wrong people for protection. They needed to have gone to God. And then in chapter 9 and 10, Hosea's message is, you left me, so I'm going to leave you. And then you have God's faithfulness to Israel, even in the midst of this, in chapter 11 and chapter 12. God speaks with anguish that he has gotten to the place that he's got to let them go. In fact, he asked the question, how can I let you go? How can I allow this to be? I don't want this to happen. I'd want some other resolution, but they don't want it. Then you have the doom of Ephraim in chapter 13. Ephraim here seems to be the tribe, the tribe where Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is from. By the way, a lot, most of the time when you read Ephraim in the book of Hosea, it represents the entire northern kingdom. But Jeroboam was the one who led them down this path. And he's saying, follow him all the way to Assyria. But what's remarkable is, and this happened in Amos, this happens in all the minor prophets. 
you have, if you describe the book of Hosea, you'd have to say that it's negative, right? I mean, even with some of the wonderful high notes and the beautiful picture of God's love and forgiveness, it's judgment. It's basically, you're done. But how does he end in chapter 14? He's talking about conversion. He's talking about pardon in chapter 14. Um, It's a very incredible story of unrequited love, of unconditional love, but a God who's going to be just as well as loving. What's interesting is, is he goes back and forth between those two, but he ends on love. So let's get to some of the major themes in the book of Hosea. And I believe one of the overriding themes is that God is love. If you're a Bible marker, you can go through, maybe your version says mercy, or maybe your version says loving kindness, but you'll see it six times in the book, 17 times some form of the word love is used. Um, Hosea has been called that prophet of love. His entire mission and message is a reflection of God's love, and he shows that love over and over again. Even in punishment, God's showing love. Um, Someone has said to Amos... Love was exhausted. But in Hosea, love is inexhaustible. When you think about the message of Hosea and the God of love in that book, it's it's incredible that nowhere in the Bible that I could find does the Bible say God is wrath or God is justice. But it does say God is love. And Hosea fixes in on that. Um, Number two, We see what makes a nation strong and weak. Um, It's amazing to think about Israel and Judah in the first place, Abraham's descendants, that they ever took the land of Canaan in the first place. And the fact that they were able to stay where they were as long as they did. Because they're in this very vulnerable place between Egypt and these northern kingdoms where Assyria and Babylon and the Medo-Persians would come from. They're sandwiched in between this and they have very little protection. But you also have them being very small. They're very tiny. So how is it that they were able to hang on so long? Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 10. It's not because you were numerous, but because I set my love on you. What makes a nation strong or weak? Hosea is telling the nation, don't worry about outward violence. Worry about inner decay. Don't make um, these alliances with other nations. Turn to me. Depend on me. What would God say to America? Would he say, don't worry about China and Russia? Would he say, worry about your, your views, your, your values on money, on religion, on sexuality? And there's certainly application to the church and the Christian, but there is a message in Hosea that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. Another theme of the book of Hosea is uh, the importance of home life. This represents the nation, but keep in mind that there is a real family underneath all of this. Hosea had standards for his home. Just look at Hosea 3, 2, and 3. What he expected, what he wanted. But also understand that hurts come to homes even when there are righteous people in them. You may look at your home life situation and say, I've tried my very best, I'm not perfect, but I've tried to live righteously. But there have been other influences in my home And there's been pain and there's been hurt and there's been apostasy as the result of that. We certainly learn that from the book of Hosea. 
The book of Hosea is about the knowledge of God. You'll find the word know and knowledge. It's about what God knows and chooses not to know. It's about the danger that comes because Israel knew the wrong things and they didn't know God and his word like they needed to. Um, in Hosea 6 and verse 6, uh, the one you know the most is Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But in Hosea 6, 6, it says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You might want to put a cross-reference there to 1 Samuel 15, 22, or to David's psalm in Psalm 51, 17, where God is after our heart, which will lead us to open our heart to his word. Um, and then there's the theme of hope. Chuck said that a while ago. Um, even with all this judgment, he's optimistic about their future. You might want to write this passage down, these passages. Hosea 2, 14 through 23. Hosea 11, 8 through 11. And Hosea 14, 2 through 9. It's where Hosea can't keep but coming back to the hope for the future. What about the New Testament and the use of Hosea? I'm going to lay that up there for you. These are some passages. Uh, the book of Hosea is quoted more than any other minor prophet in the New Testament. He's called by name once in the New Testament by Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 25 and 26. There's one messianic prophecy, Hosea 11 and verse 1, um, where we read about out of Egypt I've called my son. Matthew 2, 15. This is used uh, by Matthew as a fulfillment of the prophecy when Joseph takes Mary and Jesus from Bethlehem to Egypt before they finally settle in Nazareth. Uh, in Hosea 10 and verse 8, there's this idea of calling on the hills to fall on us. Jesus applies that to the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, John's going to uh, apply that to the punishment of Rome in Revelation 6 and Revelation 9. And then you, you see the others there. How do you see Jesus in Hosea? Let me close with this. You certainly see the Messianic prophecy. But you see Jesus as the perfect groom who wants his bride to be prepared, to be ready, and to be pure. This is God and Israel in the Old Testament. But seeing Jesus in this, he sees the church as his bride. And he wants us to be ready for the marriage of the Lamb, Revelation 19 and verse 6. Well, maybe at least a scratch of the surface. You can look deeper in the book of Hosea. Next week is the book of Micah. Book of Micah.